Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We are going to be discussing how do you make calculated improvements to a brand that has over 200 years of history and tradition. Today, our guests are Jean Baptiste Cayon, chef de cave at Champagne Louis Rotor, and Xavier Barlet. Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications at Mason's Marks and Domains USA, which is the importation arm of Champagne Louis Rotor. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the move from Brut Premier to collection series of wines for Champagne Louis Rotor. Jean-Baptiste, I was hoping we could start with you and maybe you could give us a little background for the people who may not know your position at Rotor. If you could tell us your history there and how long you've been there. Yes, Jean-Baptiste Lecaillon, I'm Executive Vice President of Louis Rodeur, the family company in France. I've been working with Louis Rodeur for 32 years, 33 years, and I have the position of Chef de Cave as well, which is quite special in Champagne. This is the person in charge of the wines and the cuvées and the making of the vineyards as well and the vineyard management. So I'm in charge of all the production of the family business. I'm curious, how common is it for someone to be in charge of both the winemaking as well as the vineyards in Champagne? It's quite rare. In fact, it's quite unique to Louis Rodreur. As you know, many houses don't have vineyards in Champagne. They just buy grapes and they make the wine from grapes they buy from growers under contract. At Louis Rodreur, we are a very specific house. 70% of our grapes come from our own vineyards. So we are grower first. And we make wine, second. This is why in our case at Louis Rodreur, it's quite obvious that we craft our wine right from the vineyards. So planting the vineyards, cultivating them, picking them is a full part of the story and of the style of each wine. I would even say this is maybe 70% of the final quality. And this is why it's so important to really craft the quality of grapes, the type of grapes, the place where you want to cultivate them to achieve the perfect quality you're looking for or the style you're looking for. Xavier, I was hoping you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and how it relates to Mason's Marks and Domains. Peter and Robert, thank you so much for having me again on X Chateau. I am X Barlier, Xavier Barlier, as you said. So I think we were meant to talk together about marketing and wine. I've been with Maison Market Domain for 20 years. Prior to Maison Market Domain in the US, I was with Euro Disney. I was the head of corporate alliances and co-branded marketing at Disneyland Paris. And prior to Disney, I was with Breno. I was the head of public relations. And prior to that, I was a young executive when I started my career with White Hennessy. And what drove you into wine after all those stints at other places? 
you now hopped into wine after these other famous French companies? As a career, it really started by coincidence. I was looking for a first job with a prominent French company that had an international outreach. And what was then, what Hennessy, not yet LVMH, was certainly one of the most appealing companies to work for. And I was very lucky to be hired as assistant export manager. And I discovered actually wine thanks to them. Because before I would be in my position, I had to go through an extensive training, starting in the vineyards, in the cellars, taking some classes, phrenology with luminaries of wine Hennessy at the time. And I got the bug there, actually. They put the bug in me. And it's never left. I am curious at Chambonneur Rotor, you have almost 250 years of history. What are your thoughts on building and innovating and evolving a brand with so much tradition and pedigree? And I am also curious, in the last 20 or so years, we have had this huge grower movement. I'm curious on how some of that has maybe impacted some of your view of the market and how that marketplace has changed and made you make some different decisions. Yeah, it's an important moment in Champagne because we have this new trend, this what I call the new Champagne trend, where because of the change of farming and the change of cultivating our grapes, and also because of the climate change that has warmed up a little bit, we have more expression, more flavors into our grapes. We pick them a little bit earlier, and they are healthier as well. So in fact, we have grapes now which have more taste than they used to have 40 years ago. And the secret of great winemaking, wherever you are, is to adapt your winemaking to the raw material, to the grapes. It's not to apply a recipe. Even if you're an old house like Louis Rodreur, existing for 246 years, you need to adapt all your winemaking. You have a full set of tools going in the vineyards or in the cellars, and you really adapt each year to the type of raw material you have to get the best of each grape. And when the grapes are changing, you have also to adapt and change your winemaking, your farming as well. I like to explain wine like it is like food. In fact, wine is food. And when you cook a product of a season, you don't do the same way than in another season where it can be different, it can have a different taste. So you really need to adapt. In that sense, innovation, even if it's the little eye of innovation, this is not the big eye of disruption and reinventing everything. The little eye of innovation is our duty to really take the best of the terroir and encapsulate it into our cuvee and in our bottling and make our wines singular with lots of expression and style at the end. So I think a farmer, a life, when you're a farmer, you depend on the climate. And the climate is changing every year, I should say every day. And the essential job of a farmer is to adapt to this change and make the wine or the farming adapted to the conditions you are meeting. So we are, it's always a challenge. In fact, you're always challenged, even when you think you know the recipe and you are quite well experienced and you know everything, you always have a climate situation that change completely your habits and you have to adapt very quickly. 
So I think innovation is a permanent status or duty of a winemaker everywhere in the world. In terms of how you think about the wines, in terms of those you know, making micro changes, I'm curious in terms of harvesting ripeness level, have you seen that dramatically change that you're harvesting a little bit later than historically or the grapes are more physiologically ripe than maybe historically? Yeah, it depends on what scale of time you're looking at it. If you look at the short scale of time, which is our life, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, that is changing dramatically. 40 years ago, we were harvesting later, less ripe. Now we are harvesting earlier and riper. That is in the short scale time. But if you look in the larger scale, you can see that back in the 1800s, late 1800s, we were picking the same date and the same ripeness. So I think when you speak about climate, when you speak about change of habits or technique, you need to look at it in the long term, in the very long term. And we are lucky in a house like Louis Rodreur, we have been here for 246 years. So we have all the archives and the knowledge of this time. So this is changing for sure. We have to adapt, but it has been consistent to adapt. And we can see today riper grapes, healthier grapes richer wines, still very fresh. They are not lacking freshness, which is key to Champagne. But we can see that the raw material is changing. So you need to adapt your winemaking as well. So obviously, Louis Roder owns a lot of vineyards, which is unique for a house. I am curious on what do you think the main benefits that the whole grower movement has had on the houses? Obviously, maybe you could just speak from Louis Roder's perspective or in general. One more time, I will go on the scale before. If the growers are alive today, it's thanks to the houses. So the growers owe a lot to the houses because they used to sell their grapes to the house. And their fathers, their grandfather, have been living thanks to the houses that were selling the wines. So we have always been very close, growers and houses. What has changed over the last 30 years the climate has changed, the viticulture has changed, and then it has been possible for the small grower to bottle their wines themselves. Before, it was not possible. We had to blend on a large scale because there was too much variation from one year to another to be able to make consistent bottling. For the last 30 years, the change of climate has made it possible, and you have seen more and more growers trying the game of bottling their own wines, bringing their own personality. And I think it's a fantastic moment for Champagne to have this grower movement realizing, in fact, that their terroir is in capacity to make fantastic wines. We were not sure of that 40 years ago for some growers. Now they realize they can do it. So I call it the revelation of terroir, the reveal of terroir. Terroirs that were unrevealed 40 years ago are slowly getting revealed thanks to the change of practices, the grower movement. And then the house have been following the same movement, except that in a house, you play on a larger scale. You won't play, or some houses can do it, from single vineyards, small bottling, and so on. But the game for a larger house is more to maintain a high level of quality with the art of blending. So Champagne is this fantastic area now where you can find some beautiful single vineyards from a small grower who has just two hectares of vineyard, five acres, so very small. 
to a house like Roder that has 600 acres, so we can make it on a bigger way, on a larger way, but using the exact same attention to details. That's a very, very interesting moment for Champagne to deliver or to reveal all these new styles that are very exciting for the wine world. And it's getting even better now because a lot of the young generations of growers are moving to organic farming, biodynamic farming. They make even wines with more personality, with more dimensions, with more complexity. And all of that is boiling and creating a very, very creative moment in Champagne. Rotor is probably best known for the top-of-the-line Cristal, but recently launched its collection series that replaces the non-vintage Brut Premier. Can you give us a bit of the rationale for why you decided to launch the collection series? We used to make Brut Premier, which was a fantastic wine created back in 1986. And in 1986 was just after the 70s, which were very difficult years for Champagne with very bad weather, complicated ripeness. So the idea of non-vintage, as we call them, and Brut Premier was a non-vintage, was to make a consistent, even quality year after year to absorb these low years versus better years to make a quality that will be quite consistent in time. That was very smart and it worked very well until we changed our practices and until climate change has come in Champagne. We were using the non-vintage to correct and unripe grapes with some reserve wines. Now the challenge is completely different. We have ripe grapes and we need to maintain freshness in them. Not give them ripeness, give them freshness. So we had to reconsider Brut Premier in a way that the game was not anymore to correct the lack of ripeness, but it was more to bring a lot of freshness in a ripe, round fruit. So we had to look at the wines from another angle, which was very interesting to do, but we could have done it on Brut Premier itself without changing the formula of Brut Premier, just adjusting and keeping Brut Premier alive. At the same time, we believe that if you want to reach the elite of multi-vintage category, you need a clear identification, you need authenticity, you need to identify what kind of wine you are making and what is in the blend and what is behind the wine. And you need to open the discussion about the wine itself, which can change from one blend to another one, and which also can change the game, not to go for consistency, but maybe go for the best possible blend. It's not about the house style consistency. It's about the best possible blend, like we do for vintage wines. And this is all the idea of coming to collection to say, okay, now we change the focus. Focus is freshness. It's not anymore ripeness. And second, we want to give you all the information about the blend. So this is 242, 242nd blend since the foundation of Louis Rodreur. And this is made of so much Chardonnay, so much Pinot Noir, so much Meunier from this area with that reserve wines from this year with perpetual reserve and so on. So we give the full information, the full transparency on our blend. And this is why it's so important to number them. Last but not least, 
in the creativity of the blend, there is nothing more boring at one point than just reproducing the same style year after year. Okay, your brut premier is really good, but this is your brut premier. You do that for 20, 30 years, and at the end, you don't speak anymore about the wine because it's always the same. It's consistent. So this is brut premier. This is fantastic, but this is brut premier. With collection now, each blend, we number it and we can open the discussion and say this is more Chardonnay, this is less Pinot Noir, this is more Meunier, this is more old wines or less old wines and why we did it. And you like it or you don't, or you prefer the previous one or the next one, that's fine. But we have a discussion about the wine. It gives identity to the wine. And we think it's not a vintage because it's a multi-vintage. But it has its own singularity, its own identity that makes it, in a way, unique. It's a very important change because now we can talk about the wine itself and what's specifically into that blend. And for us, it's quite important to have done this. Let's be clear. Collection is just the modern evolution of Brut Premier because I have been making Brut Premier for... 30 years, and my team has been working on Brut Premier. So we are very Brut Premier people in our test. So it's just the evolution, the logical evolution of a wine that has to be modern and that has to play to be able to take the best of now and not of yesterday. Champagne has changed since the beginning. Remember, 100 years ago, champagne was a dessert wine, very sweet. People were drinking champagne at the end of the meal. And the champenois have changed it 50, 60 years ago. And they say, okay, let's put it aperitif, celebration. And then it became less sugar, more joyful, more fresher, and so on. And now maybe we are shifting a little bit more towards a more gastronomic type of wine. So when we talk about innovation, I'm curious, because you mentioned perpetual reserve for the collection versus the Brut Premier. How much of that is new for Champagne Rotor, or is that one of your innovation areas? Yes, it's a completely different new tool. I said it, we are looking now for freshness. So I had to set up a tool that will ensure maximum freshness. The minerality, some people talk about, you know, the saline, the salivating finish, and so on, that could come from a specific kind of reserve. And having tested many reserves perpetuelles from other growers, I always found it amazing because this is bringing at the same time lots of complexity from age, but at the same time, it's super fresh and super salivating. In fact, because of this addition of multi years in the same blend, in the same tank, you retain only the minerality of all. You don't get the organic, the fruitiness, you get the minerality of all. And the minerality is really bringing the freshness to our blend. So we worked to design this Reserve Perpetuelle that we started in 2012 and with 50% Pinot Noir, 50% Chardonnay that we had selected because they were super salivating, super fresh, and we add them year after year to the Reserve Perpetuelle to have at the end something every year more and more complex. So every year you add of the last vintage, so it gets more and more complex because the wine is 
getting more diversity. And at the same time, it gets more and more mineral salivating, which add a very strong feeling finish to the collection. And now, Réserve Perpétuelle is about one third of collection. So it's a strong base. This is maybe the base of freshness of collection. And on the top of that, we can play with traditional oak reserve or young wines to play a more singularity, a more expressive wines. But we are sure, thanks to the Réserve Perpétuelle, that you have a huge freshness base. And also, you're sure, and that's fantastic for the winemaker, that you're sure that every year it's going to be better. So you build the future at the same time. And that's a really fantastic tool. So we age them in very large tank of a thousand hectoliters, so very big tanks with very small chimney, little oxygen, zero, zero oxygen into the wine so that it's really slow down all the aging. And it is kept at a temperature, at a steady temperature of 12 degrees Celsius, which is an underground cellar temperature. This is not artificial temperature. This is underground cellar temperature. So this is super stable. And for a wine, especially for champagne, stable temperature is the best for nice and slow aging. So we have all the tools to have a very slow aging of a multi-vintage reserve perpétuelle that will bring a lot of freshness to our final blend. And this is new with collection. Because of this new kind of grapes we have, which are riper, which are fruitier, and we need more freshness. Just to give a quick comparison, so Brut Premier, you would use reserve wines, but I'm curious on what percentage that was, because you said the collection has about a third right now of perpetual reserve, but those add fairly different characteristics. But you also are adding reserve wines into the collection as well. So when it's all said and done, how much reserve or perpetual reserve like total co- will make up the final blend of a collection bottle? It will change at every blend of collection because we try. The game is also to make the wine singular on every blend. So we don't want the reserve perpetuelle to take over the originality or the singularity of the last vintage. So we do trials of 10, 20, 40, 30%, blind testing and see what is the level where it does bring all the freshness and salivating freshness I'm looking for without neutralizing the singularity of the recent harvest. And we found that it's usually about 30, 35% of reserve perpetuelle that always work. And on the top of that, we also add 10% of reserve wine from older vintages, which are aged in oak. This is another story. This is a Rodrer story. Rodrer, we have been always using, and with Brut Premier, that was the case, we have always been using 6 to 10% oak reserve wines to print with this chocolatey, oaky structure of aging in oak to print the signature of Louis Rodrer. It used to be 6 to 10%. Now this is 10%. So I've increased the signature as well. So in collection, I've increased the freshness, thanks to Reserve Perpetuelle. But I've also increased the signature to 10% of Oak Reserve wines. And on the top of that, I'm using the most recent harvest, which I increased also the originality, the singularity, playing with more Chardonnay on the current 242, for example, 
because the name was the singing varietal in 2017. So this is very complex, but we have the reserve overall to 40-45% of the final blend with 55% coming from the most recent harvest, which is 2017. So collection takes Rotorer to another level, the multi-vintage category, as you discussed, over non-vintage. But why replace Brut Premier instead of adding collection? Why not keep Brut Premier and have collection? At one moment, you have to realize that to make consistency in your lineup, and in your range. In fact, we found by doing our trials with Collection, we found that in fact, before Collection, Brut Premier was Roderer, but was maybe a cousin of Roderer. It was not a child of the family. And Collection is back as a child of the family. There is more resemblance or there is more common DNA between Collection and Crystal today than there was between Brut Premier and Crystal. Often, the wine experts told me in the past that Brut Premier was a different animal. It was not like the Roderer, that sometimes in Brut Premier, they didn't realize that it was Roderer, or they didn't recognize Roderer. They loved it, but there was not a strong Roderer signature on Brut Premier. The same who are testing collection now tells me, now you're back to the family. This is definitely Roderer. So I think its collection is more Roderer than Brut Premier was, and by doing so, it's logical that we forget Brut Premier and we switch to collection because this is our new way of making a multi-vintage. So do you think that Rotor will need a more, quote-unquote, entry-level champagne to attract newer and younger customers into the category and the brand? If you speak about financial price point, maybe it's a question we can have, but I think it gets the young generation collection because it's new, the young generation now, they don't want to drink the wine of their father or their grandfather who was drinking Brut Premier. They want to drink their own. So they drink a new wine. So this is a good way to capture the young generation. The other good way to capture the young generation is all the transparency behind the wine. The information we give, the details we give, like a grower, like a grower does. People know exactly what they drink. And I can see more and more in the young generation, more and more expert knowledge in this young generation than they used to be. I think the young generation is not drinking a brand. They are drinking a wine. They want to know the story about. They want to know what's behind. That's my feeling. I can see more and more. Yesterday, I had a young Brazilian champagne lover that was exactly 25-year-old, completely passionate about what's inside, what we are talking about, where does it does come from, when it was produced, and why you produce it that way. And a collection delivers all of this, which Brut Premier was not. Brut Premier was just a, more a label, and you will drink a Brut Premier, you will not know just by looking at the label if it was 2-year-old, 3-year-old, 5-year-old, 10-year-old. With collection, you know exactly what it is. And I think it's part of what the new generation does look for. More information, more knowledge, more uh, craftsmanship put forward into each bottle, more than branding. So with collection, it's more expensive than Brut Premier. How do you think about pricing collection against the rest of the portfolio when you've got vintage, Blanc de Blanc, and Cristal in there as well? they were very aware that the next version would be much more expensive. 
a little bit like in engineering, when you want a more efficient rocket, it's going to be more expensive to produce. There will be more engineering, there will be more materials, there will be more construction, and it's going to be a little bit more difficult to fly. So that was really the new frontier. So they knew that that champagne would be more expensive to produce, hence the constraint to garner a higher price point in the market. And we know, especially in the U.S., that you do not set your price. Louis Vuitton can set its price in the market because they control that distribution down to the retail store. That's not the case in wine because it's simply not legal. So this is the market that actually decides of the price positioning. You may only have the intent to position your wine in a certain way. And when we looked at it from a marketing standpoint, a couple of years ago, when we were finally introduced to this new wine, we started to think this is a very different product. We can talk a little bit about that. And fundamentally, I felt that it belonged to a different category. Officially, Champagne, you have two categories, non-vintage and vintage. Prestige Cuvée are the vintage category. And non-vintage is precisely the definition I gave for Brut Premier, which came from the second half of the century and the intent of all Champagne houses to be able to ship Champagne every year, to have a very consistent product. And there is another category, the multi-vintage. And the multi-vintage is a very different. It's a non-dated champagne as non-vintage, but the proposition is very different. And this is what I call an elite category in which you're going to find Krug Grand Cuvée. You're going to find uh, Laurent Perrier Grand Siècle, Jackson. These are non-dated champagne. They, are, they only bear a number that corresponds to something in the history of the house. Like for Grand Cuvée 156, which is a phenomenal champagne, I correspond to the 156th time that they've done this cuvée, which is remarkable. So the intent of collection was very different. Brut Premier, again, each time the last 20 years that I had to introduce the next iteration of Brut Premier, it was pretty much the same champagne from the consumer standpoint, because that was the basic principle. Same taste, about, same dosage, and they are very successful brands in the market, in the non-vintage category. So with collection, we are entering the space of the elite that I've just described. So the one is very different. It's 55% of one harvest, 35% of a Soleran, which is a Reserve Perpetuelle, and 10% of Reserve Wines. So this is basically a completely different proposition than Brut Premier. So in terms of pricing, we needed and we expected the wine to be recognized in the market at a higher price point, which is very fortunately what's been happening. So now, Peter, to the question, how does it compare to vintage champagne and the vintage champagne, the rosé, the vintage and the blanc, the blanc we have? I believe in the long run, collection will get very close to that kind of pricing and maybe at one point in time will be aligned with the vintage cuvées of Louis Rodrea. And the reason is that from a technical standpoint, this champagne is extraordinarily sophisticated, like all of the elite players that I described, and there are a few more. I'm curious that you made a very clear distinction between multi-vintage and non-vintage, and that obviously multi-vintage being more expensive to produce than non-vintage. Do you think that the average consumer understands the difference between those two and do you believe that those two categories carry different price brackets for the consumer? The average consumer, I don't know, but I believe that the sparkling wine category in the U.S. 
is very democratic. I would call it that way, very democratic. So a lot of different consumers love bubbles and more so today than ever before. So maybe consumers with uh, less interest in education are ready to pay a certain price and people with a high level of education are willing to pay, obviously, a higher price. It depends also of the volume, the quantity, or conversely, the rarity of the champagne. And of course, the more rare the wine or the champagne is, the higher the price. And it is recognized by such as by the collectors, for instance. It is not by coincidence that we call that one collection. Every year, the wine will be different. There will be a new number. And I think from a pure marketing standpoint, there is a symbolic value to the term collection and the fact there is a number. And I'm going to give you my personal example. 242, which is the first commercialized iteration of a 750 collection, corresponds to the year 2021. That was my 20th year with the company. That was my mom's 90th birthday. The 243 that we're going to launch in summer, that's going to be the wedding of my youngest daughter. I already have the bottles, the magnums, and we signed with the people involved, my family or my daughter. So I think from a pure storytelling standpoint, I think it's a phenomenal idea, which I didn't have or no one in marketing at Rover had. That was fundamentally a very authentic endeavor to produce a champagne from the 21st century. But there is so much in it. It runs so deep that we find a lot of values for the consumers. So Brew Premier was my go-to recommendation for people that wanted to taste what quality champagne tastes like for around $50. Because a lot of people are like, I want to see what all the fuss is about champagne. Give me something that won't break the bank. That was my go-to recommendation. It was like super consistent and always delivered. Do you think with collection coming out that we are losing an entry point for champagne Louis Roder at that $50-ish price point? Or do you think that it's going to stay comparably priced? Robert, I think it depends. If you are a fan, and I'm going to make the distinction between a fan and a client. If you're a fan of Krug, your entry point is $150. And you don't have a problem to pay $150 because you're a fan of the brand, like I am. Conversely, if you are just a quote-unquote customer who values the champagne in rapport to the way you are going to consume it, this is where you're going to set your price point. So if this is a date with your wife for your 20th anniversary, you're going to be willing to pay a certain price, maybe $100. If this is just while watching the Super Bowl, maybe you'll be willing to pay $25 because there will be more people in the room. So I think it has to do with the most fundamental questions in marketing. And I love that question. What is the role of your product in consumer's life? If the role is very, very important from a symbolic standpoint, like Burgundy, for me, reminds me of my father. Whenever I see a bottle of Von Romanet, Chambertin, I think of my father. So Chambertin is a very high value in my life as the connection I had with my father who introduced me to one when I was young. So the answer to your question is that if you want a bottle of Rui Rodrer, the entry point is going to be probably around $60, $65. But if you want a bubbly, bearing the name Rodrer, you may want to turn to Rodrer Estate. And that was the purpose of establishing Rotary Estate to give the opportunity to consumers interested in sparkling wine and also champagne to have a fairly low entry point. So I think we're in a very good situation 
because we have that space of the multi-vintage, the vintage champagne with Eurodrier, and we have also the, what I call the California proposition, which benefits from 242 years of blending and which are also estate wine. So we hope that in our other world, you're going to find the wine you want, the one you need, the one that's going to delight you. And so will collection be released every year or only in certain years? Every year. Every year, we will release collection. In July, we will release collection 243. Next July, it will be 244. And I've just blended and I'm bottling 246 now. As we go to wrap up this episode, we'd like to end on a personal note. And so we always ask a question. What was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year? And who did you drink it with? The problem is that I had many, many, many memorable wines in the last year. No, I was lucky enough in the last year to come to a good friend, 60 years birthday in Los Angeles. This good friend is a found of the best wine of the world. And he invited these 10 good wine friends for a party to open fantastic wine of the 70s, the 60s. From all over, we tested some Californian wines, but we tested some Bordeaux, some Burgundy. And that was, I think, my wine moment of the last 12 months. If I have to pick one, it's very difficult to pick one. There was a Clos de Bèze 1971 from Armand Rousseau, which was an amazing bottle, which I really loved. But there was also an Aubryon 1961 that was quite amazing. So we had a lot of Pretty good wines. Sounds like it was a great evening. <laughs> it was a great evening and a great learning experience as always, because when you are lucky enough to taste those wines, it's, you're tasting history. You're tasting the best examples of each region, development and making an artistry in each region. That was a fantastic moment. I hope I will get some more moments like this. I can't wait. We need to make more friends, Robert. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We do better friends. Jean-Baptiste, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time all the way from France to connect with us. Thank you. And really give us insights to everything you guys are doing at Champagne Louis Rodor. Much appreciated. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.